0: Welcome to episode 302 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. There's
0: nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So we're back to talking on this episode about one of my favorite subjects. Actually, I think it's a shared favorite subject, and that is, it's good anytime you can just talk about Jesus. It seems like just conversations about Jesus, like just saying, let's talk about Jesus, is kind of undervalued, not because we mean it to be, but because it almost seems like it's a thing that's overtalked, but you just can't overtalk Jesus. Am I right? Yeah. It's almost like trite. It's like that joke of like the Sunday school answer, everything is Jesus
1: but like the sunday school answer to everything is jesus because he's actually the answer to everything at the end of the day. <laughs> yes. So, I'm excited. I out of the three offices of Christ, uh Christ as king I think is probably my favorite and that that's relatively new in the last year, but I just I love what uh what the reformed tradition adds to this subject when we talk about Christ as king. Uh, and the way that the Westminster uh, catechism's approach to this question is just, it's just on point. Like chef's kiss. I want to do that emoji, the chef's kiss emoji, but you can't see it because this is a podcast. Mwah. That's do the it chef's right kiss. on. yeah.
0: You're right on. And that's one of the things I've been grateful for. So we've been on this kind of mini series within the topic of the systematic theology that we're working our way through. And you've been kind enough to lead us through these offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and now kind of concluding as king. So we're getting there and it's been a joy to hear about all of these ways in which the central identity of Christ and His offices impact our daily living and really bring us strength and encouragement and bring us or usher us into relationship with Him in each of those separate but overlapping and amalgamated and distinct functions. So we're going to get there and we're going to talk about Christ as King on this episode. But before we do, you know, one of the things that you and I have always been committed to is you're probably not going to hear your mainstream supporter style advertisements on this podcast because one purple mattress doesn't know who we are, but I do have a purple mattress. It's pretty great. We should reach out to them. Yeah. It's pretty great. I do enjoy it. So, but that's like free of charge right there. But Anytime we recommend something, it's because we have basically set ourselves into that very thing. And so this is one of those episodes, if you like what you've been hearing, part of that has been brought to you by Logos Bible Software, who, again, is really graciously sponsoring the episode that you're listening to right now.
1: Yes. Yeah. And one of the things I love about Logos Bible Software in terms of how they do their partnerships with, um, with their podcast partners is they don't just give you like a check. They don't just cut a check to you. Like they make it easy for you as a podcast host to access their resources. So that way you can actually make a good recommendation to your listeners, and then they also provide your listeners with a reduced cost way to get into the system. So you right. can actually purchase the fundamentals package still for $50 if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals. This is a great way to kind of get into the system, get into the program uh, at, a, at a lower price than some of the higher packages. You can always add a higher base package later. You can always add individual resources, but it allows you to get access to kind of like the software engine, which is really the key. And this week, I just wanted to call out a particular resource. I actually have a hard copy of this book, but I actually, even even owning the hard copy of this book, I went in uh, some time ago and purchased the Lagos version because as nice as it is to curl up next to the fireplace with a hard copy book, it's a <laughs> lot easier to do some hard study with a digital copy in Lagos. And it's For got sure. all the verse references cited. This book would show up if you did like a theological search on Christology. And this book is called God the Sun Incarnate. It's part of the Foundations of Evangelical Theology series, which is published by Crossway. Uh, we like handsome books, and the books are really handsome. But this is a digital book; it's digitally handsome. I'm not sure what that means, but it is. Uh, but it's a really good entry, and it it covers a lot of the same normal ground you would expect in a Christology book. You know. Nicene Christology, all the kinds of like history of Orthodoxy, history of the the you know conciliar period, but um, Stephen Wellem is the author, and he actually addresses some more modern controversies as well. He talks a little bit about Canonic Christology, which is a distinctly uh, liberal kind of. 19th, 20th century theology. You don't really see a lot of canonic Christology earlier than that. It just wasn't really a thing. Um, and so he addresses some of the more modern Christological issues that have cropped up. Um, so it's a, it's a great resource. You can get it for less than you'd buy the hardcover book. Right now, you can get it on Lagos for $27.99, um, which is a, it's a sale price right now. I'm not sure if that price is going to increase or when it is. But um, it's a great resource. And just like any of the resources you purchase in Lagos, when you get it in your library, it becomes fully indexed, fully searchable. You can use all of the fun search hacks that we've talked about, you know, Christ within 10 words, king, and you find everywhere that the word Christ and the word king appears within 10 words of each other, um, which is a lot easier than sort of the standard fuzzy search algorithms, which will come up with all sorts of weird stuff sometimes. So. Check it out. Lagos uh, Bible software. You can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash Lagos if you're interested in purchasing a higher level base package, or you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals if you're looking at getting in on the ground floor with that um, $50 fundamentals package.
0: And it's certainly worth the money and you're getting all kinds of great resources. It really is like a great way to get into the ecosystem. So whether or not you thought it's not really approachable because there's all this material. I don't know how to use it. There, we talked about there's all kinds of wonderful training that's available to you, but also this base price hopefully is, is very approachable. So we really just encourage people because it is a great resource. Whether or not, I think actually, didn't we long ago basically sponsor or affirm Logos before they sponsored or we affirmed did. us? Like yeah, <laughs> Yeah. We've been fans of Logos as long as, as, long as we've been doing the show. So Yeah. There's like a John reference in there somewhere. Like, you know, we love them before they first loved us, but it's true. It's very true. So definitely everybody should go check that out as you've admonished them to do. And we certainly heard people, you know, over the last couple of episodes, we've wanted to focus on these lovely offices of Jesus and the affirmations titles are coming back. But right now this is our joint affirmation is go check out Logos. You won't be disappointed. Yes. Yeah. So why don't we get into our topic then, Jesse? Yeah, let's do it. So, we've talked about already Christ as prophet and Christ as priest and now we're rounding this out it is really the perfect trinity here with respect to understanding the different functions, offices that Christ undertakes for us. And again our our purpose in all of this has been, especially if you've, as you've led us through it, has been to both understand like the technical theological underpinnings of those things, while at the same time understanding that if they don't translate or transmute or move into our lives in ways that are fundamental but also profound then what's the purpose of knowing those things about Jesus? So this is really a conversation about getting to know Jesus again, maybe for the first time or rehearsing some of these lovely things that he does in his offices, but also as a way of practically living out piety and service to our King. So I say to you, because we're talking about Christ as King, where's the best place to start?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to read both the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the larger catechism. And the reason I'm going to read both, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this this may be a little bit of an overstatement, but I don't think much. Memorizing this answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism changed the way that I think about Jesus. It changed the way that I, I conceptualize what it means for Jesus to be Lord. So we talked about how there's different title. We didn't really talk about it explicitly, but we've sort of landed on different titles of Christ and different, uh, which corresponded to different offices. So we talked about that, you know, in the beginning was the word and we really tied Christ being the word to his prophetic ministry. Um, we talked about, you know, just all of the sacrificial language, Christ being the lamb of God, being the high priest, right. all of that stuff connects to his priestly ministry. The word Lord, Jesus as Lord really is connected to this kingly ministry. It's this kingly office that he he subscribe or he he executes. So I'm gonna read the Westminster shorter catechism and I just want you to really think about taking the time to memorize it. It's not very long. It's longer than some of them, but it really I think will change the way you think about it because it's not it's not necessarily the things that we would normally associate with kingship. Part of that is because we don't most of us are in America, we don't have a king. No, you know, no tyrants here. Like we are not used to the idea of a king or a monarch, and so some of these concepts are foreign to us. I would suspect that um, our British brothers and sisters who um, live in a monarchy where other listeners who live in an actual monarchy, although I know that most of those monarchs are figureheads, but are used to the concept of a queen or a king and what those things are. Some of this would land a little more intuitively to them, but the bulk of our audience is in the United States. And so we actually usually probably think of Kings as like a bad, like a bad archaic ancient thing that we cast off that, but a, a true good noble King is a benefit and a blessing to the people. Um, that was part of why in the Old Testament, like the kings were always a, not a blessing to the people is because they weren't that benevolent king. And so this is question uh, 26 of the Shorter Catechism. The question is, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And so in my own, my own piety and practice on this, I've, I've taken time to reflect on each of those elements, right? Each of those sort of three pieces in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And each one of those has this enormous amount of um, edification and assurance that I think it gives us as Christians, because it really grounds our entire salvation, the beginning the the ongoing kind of middle of our salvation and then the consummation of our salvation, you could tie each one of these to justification, sanctification, and glorification if you wanted to. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of that. But I also wanted to read the larger catechism because what the larger catechism does in this, which it it usually does in most of them, is it takes each one of those sub points and it kind of breaks them out and expands them. So the question is the same. It's question 45. And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, persevering and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So this, this expands each one of those points and gives it color. and, and like if, um, if the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer is like Dorothy at the beginning of Wizard of Oz where everything is black and white, and then this this is when Dorothy lands in Oz and everything pops out in color. It gives you that sort of like background information. And I just think this is one of those like you can rest in this theology. We've talked a lot about that right. with the different offices of Christ. and and. Some of the theology we've talked about in the more metaphysical stuff with the doctrine of God and theology proper, even even some of the stuff with covenant theology is very abstract. Once we get to this doctrine of Christ, especially his roles, his different offices as mediator, it's like a big, long sigh of relief because it's like everything is comfortable and comforting. And I just love that about the, these questions.
0: Right. I agree with you on that. And I think it's, it's worth saying that in some ways there's been a lot of pushback on that. That's maybe been inadvertent because there's a lot to be said. So we have Jesus as Lord as one of like, essentially like the earliest creeds of the right. church. And yet that seems to be an oft abused or misunderstood statement in kind of our modern context, so like, how does that play into like what's the right way to think about this? Because you'll see people talk about lordship, salvation, yeah, or Christ as Lord, He is my Lord, or there's this sense that we need to confess Him as Lord in some particular way. How does that fit in then, or go against with what you've just read?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we we've hammered that nail of lordship, you know, lordship, salvation, a, a, a bunch of different times, and. To be really clear, like there are positive elements of what is being taught in lordship salvation theology. And the the issues with lordship theology salvation or lordship salvation, lordship theology are really functions of a corruption in covenant theology. Right. It's a it's a was a debate that happened and developed within dispensational circles. It was an argument between two dispensationalists, both of whom um Obviously, to lesser degree, John MacArthur, but both of whom dis- disregard or or um, disavow covenant theology proper. And right. so, there's this confusion of categories that's already happening in Lordship Salvation that really muddies the waters. But this kind of theology is rooted in in covenant theology, right? So, it's not just that He bestows saving grace upon whoever, whosoever will believe. He Obviously, that's a biblical phrase, and so we want to affirm that in the sense that it's intended, but he bestows saving grace on his elect. So you can't have a king who doesn't have a defined people, right? That's part of, part of the nature of a kingship is that you have a kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom that is not defined, right? Borders... Right boundaries are definitional. They're part of what it means to be a king. You have this particular tract of land that is your kingdom. You have this particular group of people that are your subjects. Um, And lordship salvation, although not necessarily, but because it denies that covenant theology element, or at least the original dispensational versions of lordship theology, which I think are still less prominent, but are still present in people like John MacArthur or Paul Washer, um, John Piper has a sort of different take on it but fundamentally is still the basically the same teaching of lordship theology. He just roots it in affections and emotions more than he does in obedience and submission. Because they've denied that covenant structure, whether they like to or not, whether they want to or not, they've lost that sense of what it means for Christ to be king is that he has a defined people. And then he extends these benefits of his kingship to those defined people, right? He doesn't subdue and restrain and conquer all enemies of all people. He subdues and restrains, or he, he conquers our enemies, all of our enemies, not just enemies, you know, abstractly, not just the enemies of all peoples, but the enemies of the church, of the people. And I think lordship salvation, because it grounds it in that obedience element, which is is part of what's going on with this, right? A king demands fealty from his subjects. That's part of what it means to be the subject of a king, is that you are faithful to that king, you are obedient to that king, there are penalties for failing to be obedient to that king. But at a fundamental level, the king claiming you as as his subject is prior to Logically prior to that obedience, um, the queen of England has no authority over me because I'm not, I'm not an English, I'm not a subject of the English empire or the English kingdom, whatever it's called. Right. So me being underneath the queen, uh, in terms of my submission to her, subjection to her, my citizenship in England is logically prior to the requirement for me to be obedient to her. I have no obligation to be obedient to her because she's not my queen. I don't. If I were to um, to become an English person, an Englishman, and to join citizenship in you know the United Kingdom, I would have to be obedient. But I can't be obedient to rules that don't apply to me. So, Lordship salvation, um, in its earliest forms, they actually made that obedience part of what it meant to be to become under the king. Was that obedience? was swept up into the definition of faith. And then that obedience was part of how it was that you became part of Christ's kingdom, part of his kingship. Um, Whereas this this is much more the king takes initiative, all of the king's actions and intentions and movement and royalty and authority, all of that precedes anything that I could contribute, whether you think sanctification is monogistic or you know, synergistic, anything I might even possibly contribute, even just as a response to this salvation, all of the king's actions come before that in this model. And in lordship salvation, that's true to a certain extent, at least as far as you know, kind of reformed Calvinistic lordship salvation. There are Arminian versions of lordship salvation that would would formulate this differently, but you know, Paul Washer, John Macarthur, John Piper—those that flavor of lordship salvation. God's action precedes our action, but the full right. kingship of Christ is only only comes about um, in the life of a believer because the believer has submitted himself to that King where in this case, the Lord has already claimed the people who are his, and now he rides out into battle, right? That's the cross. He rides out into battle to conquer the enemy that is holding his people captive. So all of the king's action, all of the king's um, authority, and all of the king's saving benefits, that is what brings us under his lordship, not, uh, not our obedience. It's not dependent on that at all.
0: So it sounds like you're saying again, as we said before, this is more about identity, both the identity of who God is and who He says this is represented, but also those whom He has brought essentially into His kingdom. Right. So there's like a a genesis here that is outside of ourselves, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that that's that's true. This is a true feature for all three of the offices. We we talked a lot, well, not a lot. But we talked about it last week. the The sacrificial element of Christ's sacrifice, especially tied into the Passover is a, uh, it's a limited atonement. It's, it's a, an atonement that is intended for a specific group of people. And we talked about how in the, you know, in the Passover, the lamb actually there was almost like a mathematical equation. If your house was under, if your household was under a certain size, you could share a, a lamb with another household. So like a lamb could account for a certain amount of people. Some of that just has to do with how much people could eat, but, but the, the principle and the <laughs> typology of it holds true. In kingship, it's the same thing, right? The the Lord is is king, right? God, the the son is king. Fundamentally, that sovereignty, that rulership according to his divinity is just as much a part of who he is as any other element or any other attribute of God. Now that he is incarnate, he still remains that king according to divinity. And then he obtained that kingship by obedience as the second Adam. So the second the 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 Adam would have been the prophet-priest king of the old covenant, of the covenant of works, had he succeeded. And now Christ, as the second second Adam or the last Adam, because of his obedience as a human, he's now the prophet-priest king of humanity. And so he does this work on behalf of his people, those who are covenantally his. Again, not, not just some abstract empty set, right, Kind of contrary to Arminians, not some abstract, empty set of hypothetical people that may or may not fulfill the criteria that's required for salvation. Um, Contra Lutheranism, it's not just some hypothetical, um, abstract, ill defined or undefined group of people who haven't resisted God's grace. At the end of the day, Lutheranism is a synergy. I know they would just kill me for saying this, but it's a synergistic model. <laughs> in that you have to engage your will not to resist grace. So you contribute something, even if it's only you contributing your lack of resistance to what God is doing in the gospel. Reformed theology, Christ as King, he conquers his enemies. He subdues his people to himself. So if you think about, um, think about a King who has a, uh, has a territory and part of his territory, this is actually an analogy that's used in um, in On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Let's say that there's a city and the city belongs to the king and the enemy attacks the city and they invade it. Well the king doesn't just wait for that those people to die out he doesn't wait for the people in the city to leave and come back to him he rides into that city and he kills the conquer you know the invaders he casts them out and then he by his presence and by the fact that he's redeemed that city or he's rescued that city he lends a new level of honor and new kind of glory to that city by his own presence but fundamentally he's doing that because it's his city not because it's a city that's out there, but because it's his city that he is responsible for defending and responsible for redeeming and rescuing. And our salvation in relation to Christ's kingship functions very much the same in eternity past. The father determined to give a people to the son and the son determined. And again, this is all accommodated language in the economy of redemption, the covenant of redemption, but the son determined to redeem and rescue those people. And he accepted that task from the father and so the father said, these people are the ones that you must rescue. This group of people, these these elect. The son now comes as the conquering king and defeats his enemies and rescues his people, those people whom the father gave to him. He rescues those people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son. That's right out of Colossians 1, I think. He transfers his people out of the kingdom of, of darkness, out of, out of the devil's grasp, into the kingdom of the beloved son and that's fundamental to what it means for Christ to be king and this is a an undervalued i think underemphasized element of Christ's kingship when we talk about Christ's kingship i think we often just think in general terms about like well yeah of course he's the king of kings he's the sovereign of the universe he controls all things but the kingship of christ is not just in reference to and actually if you read this definition in the the catechism it doesn't really talk ab- about sovereignty over all things all that much it does talk about him ordering all things unto his own glory yes but that's a very very late part of the question it's not even mentioned in the shorter catechism version at all this is really focused on what he does for particularly for his people in the in the economy of redemption partially because we're focusing on the kingship of christ kingship of christ in reference to his role as mediator his office as mediator
0: Right. So there's a lot here that's rooted in what we would say is an objective truth. So there's this, sometimes the sense in modern evangelicalism where we want to make Christ our Lord, that somehow, and I think that's subtle in the sense that I think many would bristle against me, basically insinuating that he is not Lord in some way already objectively, but this language does tend to betray this fact that either he is your Lord and he brings judgment or he is your Lord and he brings salvation, but he is Lord. He is the King. He is over all things. Right. And he comes with that kind of authority because it's been bestowed on him because that's the way reality works. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully this is equal opportunity to enrage everyone. Um, think about the analogy of either president Trump or president Biden, right? In both elections, there was a vocal group of people who basically said, this is not my president, right? In, in, the, uh, in Trump's case, it was a, a vocal group of, of liberals who actually were like, hashtag not my president. And in uh, Biden's case, there's an even larger, even more vocal group of people who would say, Biden is not my president. On one level, it's an objective fact that those people are citizens of the United States and Trump and or Biden, depending on what time we're talking about, is or was their president. That's an objective reality. Um, The decisions that that president made were binding upon the people insofar as he made legal decisions, blah, blah, blah. But the, the legal decisions that were made, the executive orders that were made and sustained by the courts were binding on those people, whether they considered Trump or Biden to be their president. So that's an objective reality. But at the same time. There is also this subjective appropriation of that where the people who wanted to appreciate Trump or Biden as their president, he was not only their president in this objective external sense. But now he was also their president in this sort of internal uh, receptive sense or subjective sense. They experienced him as their president. So there is an element of that that's happening in the, the kingship or the lordship of Christ. Is that there are people, there are 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 the non-elect, and that's you know that's part of where this says is, is he restrains and overcomes all their enemies. Well, that that's Christ being king over those people. Um, right. You know, a, a king who um, goes into a foreign land. And claim subjects, uh, those are not his people. He's trying to make them his people, but they're not his people. Um, however, it's still an act of a king if those people are within his land. So we're talking about uh, the difference between like foreign enemies and rebels. Uh, when there's rebels within the the area that's controlled by a government, and that government puts those rebels down, it's because they're putting down people who are their people that they have authority over, that uh, that are rebelling against them. Well, that's, that's the whole universe when we're talking about Christ as king. All exactly. people are God's people um, in this sort of universal lordship, universal salvation, or universal um, subjection kind of a register that we're talking about. Those people will never fully experience the subjective element of that. They will at some point bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, right? They will acknowledge and recognize the universal kingship of Jesus Christ, both as God and as the second Adam, as the human king of all creation. Um, But they will never receive that subjectively as their king. He will be the king. He may not be their king. In this question, though, we also see that universal lordship there, right? He orders all things for his own glory and for the good of uh of his people for the elect. So i it's part of the reason this resonates with me so much is for similar reasons this is almost like uh, in many ways it's the same kind of statement that you and i were so jazzed up about in the first question of the Heidelberg catechism, right? All right. things must be subservient to my salvation. Well, God orders power, Christ powerfully orders all things for his own glory and for their good, for the good of the salvation of the elect. So, this element of it, you know, to kind of bring it into a more, maybe a more practical register is when I'm having a really bad time of things. And I don't mean like a frustrating time. I mean, like when someone gets cancer is dying, or when there's a sudden car accident and there's, you know, I don't know where I'm going to get the money to pay for both my food and medicine and for a vehicle to get me to work to continue paying for my food and medicine these are real situations people run into and they're difficult right the elect are not uh, are not exempt from trials and tribulations if anything we should expect them more than the reprobate do however those things are coming to us from god for our salvation that's what james says right we can we not that those trials are joyful Not that we should have joyful feelings about those trials, but we can consider them joy. We can consider it joy because God is using those to bring us to an intended end. He's using those things for our good to bring about the perfection and maturity that He desires for us. So I just think we, you know, we, when we look at the kingship of Christ, we often, as I said, we often get, I don't know, locked into, the concept of God as king, which is true and important, and and we need to talk about that. And I think we focus and think less about what it means for Christ to be king, not just God, but the God-man to be king. I think that's a really important part of this. And that's why I think for me, memorizing this question in the Shorter Catechism really changed my thought process about my own piety, because it took God, it took Christ as God and king out of just that sort of register and really landed for me that Christ is also king according to humanity. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me in my everyday life? It means that he's subdued me to himself. Well, if he's subdued me to himself, that means that it wasn't me that did it. So I don't have to fe- be fearful of unsubduing myself, right? He wouldn't be a very good king if he- if I could just unsubdue myself anytime I wanted. Christ subduing me to himself means that he has secured my subjection to his kingship, not me. It's not my obedience that has secured my subjection to him. It's not my right. obedience as part of faith uh that has caused my salvation. It's Christ's kingship taking laying claim on my life that has caused my salvation. Well, if the Lord of the universe and the glorious you know, second Adam has laid claim to my life, then nothing can take that away. Nothing can steal me from his hand. So I just think if we go through, you know if you, Especially if you're going through a hard time a trial, going through each of those pieces of those parts of the shorter catechism, sometimes when I'm having a really bad day, like if I'm I'm at work um, and I'm just frustrated about what's going on with my job or if I'm, you know, if I had a night where the baby doesn't sleep and I'm just really frustrated and I feel like, man, I'm never going to get this. Like I'm just going to, I'm going to be eating four hours of sleep for the rest of my life. I actually will go through each of those, each of those points and say, all right, how, how does Christ subduing me to Himself? How does that benefit me and edify me in this moment? How does Christ um, ruling and defending me? What does that look like for this moment? And how does Christ conquering and restraining all of mine and His enemies? How does what does that do for me in this moment? And I found that 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 relatively straightforward exercise has done wonders for me to just sort of like reorient my thought when I'm in one of those dark spots, whether it's emotionally dark or physically dark or whatever. It reorients me towards this concept that Christ really is on the throne. and He really is in control. And I really don't have to be fearful because the Lord of the universe is not just the king, but he is my king.
0: Right on. And I think there's a lot there that we hear regularly. And one of the things I want to call you back to is something you said about the difference or at least acknowledging the difference between what we just normally associate it as, well, God is king, but Christ is king. So maybe you can speak to what are those distinctions there and how does that feed into everything that you just said? Some of it probably overlaps, but why is it impactful and significant and I guess profound that Christ is also king?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in, in reference to this particular conversation, the biggest thing is Christ is not king only in function of in, in light of being god so it might be a little bit more clear to talk about the difference between god as father in relation to creation and god as father in relation to salvation right so when when we pray our father in heaven we're praying that to our father who is our savior um, and now we can you know there's all sorts of discussion about should we ever call christ our father I think we can. He's our father in salvation. He's our father in uh, in creation. We're not saying he's the father in, in terms of the Trinity. We're just saying he plays this paternal role in those areas. God is the father of all in relation to creation. He created everything. Everything has their origin in him. All things In him, all things live and move and have their being. All things are to him and through him and for him. All of this language about creation being God's, being for God, all of that is is true. It's equally true of the elect as it is to the reprobate. However, when we talk about God as our king, um, that is true of the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? That's true of God, that he is our king in a different sense than he is the king. But it is particularly true of Christ in that he is our king in our nature, so that element of Christ being the incarnate king, the incarnate God-man, who is king both according to humanity and according to divinity, both in his office of exaltation and in his office of humiliation, that right. really locks it into being about his people. So Christ as incarnate king, he is king over the, non, the non-elect. the He's king over the reprobate in judgment. Uh, that kingship is still off, you know, in, uh, I think it's the book of Hebrews, he says, we we see not all things are under his subjection yet. So that's a paraphrase, but it says not we don't see all things under his subjection at this time. So Christ's kingship over all, in this sort of consummate sense, is not actualized until the eschaton. There are still those living in rebellion to him. I know that like we have some post millennials and a couple theonomists that listen to the show and their heads just exploded. But it's true, right? I'm an <laughs> I'm a millennialist. I believe Christ is King spiritually over everything. He rules and reigns over everything. I guess you could call me an a, a, an optimistic millennial. However, there are still things that are not living in subjection to Him yet. Right. However, again, the Christian, even though we still live in sin, we still have sinful, sinful, corruption in our natures, and we still that still leaks its way out and seeps its way out. Christ has subdued us to Himself. He has made us his own people. He has set us aside. He has washed us with the water of the word. He has indwelled us with his spirit. He lives not only for us and around us, but he dwells within us. We are his tabernacle. We are his workmanship. All of this language that shows the possession of Christ of his people, Mm -hmm. that is kingly language. Um, The priest doesn't possess a people. The prophet doesn't possess a people. The king possesses a people. That's the reason why uh, the you know the Israelites were the people of David, right? It's it's the sons of Israel. Israel wasn't a king, but he was the figurehead kingly figure of of the people. Um, the city of David of Jerusalem, right? All of that language is intended to show that the king possesses a people that are his people. That means he has benefits and privileges over them. He also has responsibilities to them. That's part of why the the um, betrayal of Uriah in the, the adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Uriah, that's why that is such a drastic betrayal. Not just because they were friends, which we, we have good reason to think that they were friends, but because this was a king betraying one of his most trusted advisors and military figures. It was a man who was so faithful to him that he wouldn't even go home to his wife when he was home from war because the people of Israel, that's how faithful he was to his King. He was so obedient that even when he was drunk, he managed to for, to like accidentally obey the King's orders. That possession of a people is particularly acute in reference to Christ as the incarnate King. And I think Athanasius, Athanasius makes this point. Um, I don't know exactly where it is in on the incarnation, but he says basically that because it was through the word that man was created, and although we are in the image of God, broadly speaking, we're particularly in the image of the Son, right? And and there's lots of theological reasons he goes there. I'm not going to get into explaining why he does that, and, and there's biblical justifications for it. I know that on its face, that seems like a uh, speculative statement, but he has good exegetical insight behind it but the son as the particular agent of creation right in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god through him all things were created same thing is said in in colossians 1 and hebrews 1 the son is the particular agent upon whom the the work of creation terminates to use kind of that inseparable operations language that function of him being sort of the proximate the proximate trinitarian person associate with creation made it. So he was the one who is fitting to come into the world and take on our flesh. And he, as our King, now he restores our nature. He elevates our nature. And that's because he is our King. So it's, it's like, um, and, and then this is where that analogy of the city comes. Not only does it, is it the case that when the King rescues the city, it becomes more glorious because of the King's presence, the King merely coming into the city, elevates that city. And he talks about how even the presence of the king in that city makes it less likely for enemies to attack it because the assault and the offense of that enemy against this kingdom is higher. It's greater if the king is present in the city of the attack. It'd be like if, um, if terrorists take over a plane and crash it, that's bad. That's a, that's a bad situation. If terrorists take over air force one and crash it, we recognize as Americans that that's uh, an elevated situation. That's a more grave situation. It's a more offensive in terms of offensive to the country than uh, if if it was just a, a regular commercial flight. That reality is tied to Christ as our king in that his kingship is so closely associated with his people that apart from his people, Christ would not in this this way of talking about his kingship would not be a king. So it's primarily all of the elements of Christ as king in reference to creation, as God, all of that's true. But we're particularly talking about Christ as king to a people. And I think that's part of why I like, I like the expansion in the um, larger catechism, is it calls out here that he gives his people officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. So this is also really connected to our ecclesiology. Right. If we have Christ as our king, then we would anticipate that he sets up a particular form of government. He sets up a particular form of government. We can debate back and forth about what that particular form of government is, but the fact that he gives the church officers, the Bible says that that's his gift to the church. That's him executing his lordship to bless the church by providing them with officers and laws and censures. Those are really important things for us to understand, and I think we miss a lot of that. Christ is the head of the church, not just in this sense of he's the originator of the church, that's true, he's the, the source and origin of the church, but he's also the head of the church in that he actively rules and reigns over it in a particular immediate sense through the officers of the church. So I just think there's, there's so much in this. Um, people can and have, and probably will continue to write whole books on this subject but this is an undervalued underemphasized element of christian theology and even in reformed circles i find that talking about the kingship of, of christ this is something that the theonomists and the, the recon you know the reconstructions that the dominion theology post mills they do really well i find that a lot of um, millennial people and um post millennial or pre millennial people in terms of eschatology, we don't do as good of a job talking about this element of Christ kingship. So I think it's valuable to sort of read some of those people, to read a little bit broadly. Um, You know, like the show King's Hall. Uh, I still have some concerns and questions about that show. But if you listen to them, you get a real sense that these, these guys really think that Jesus is actually the king. They really believe that Jesus is actually the king. Um, In a way that I don't know that if you listen to like a pessimistic Amil I don't know that you get that same sense you kind of get this feeling like he's sort of this absentee landlord that like this area here where we are like this is the slums and he's kind of a slumlord that yeah he's he's over it but like he's not really doing much with it and like like he won't even come and fix the sink until like he's going to tear the whole building down and rebuild it. That's not Christ as King. That's not what the Bible presents. So I think this question offers a good corrective to a lot of our theologies. It helps us to sort of reorient to some of those uh, those elements that we maybe have missed. And again, I just think looking at those three points in the Shorter Catechism and finding finding ways to apply those to the particularly difficult situations you're encountering. But I think all situations has just been such an immense source of comfort and hope and, and satisfaction for me.
0: And in addition to having all this wonderful temporal benefits of understanding that Christ is King here and now, and that he's working out all things for his glory and also everything is subservient to our salvation. There is this part of what you're saying that also helps uh, us affirm the importance and the true essential nature of what it means to be in heaven in eternity, that the King is present there. It's not about good things. It's not about gold streets. It's not about just not having pain anymore. It's about being present in the kingdom with the one who has dominion over that kingdom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, um, I forget which psalm it is, but everybody everybody's heard the the worship song that's based on this psalm of, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, right? I would rather be, uh, I would rather be the doorman in the courts of the Lord than to be the king in some other court, and I think that's you know that's that's the way that we need to look at things, is to be the the lowest of lows in the court of the king is better than being some petty warlord who rules over some fiefdom somewhere, right? So that's, I think that's an actual, that's one of the best applications of this, and I'm glad you called that out because I hadn't I hadn't necessarily thought about it that way either, is that Christ's kingship not only defines what it means to be as people here on earth, but it defines what it means to be as people in eternity, in eternity future, that the presence of the king is what makes heaven glorious. Otherwise, it's just some other place. It might be a really nice place. Right but it's just some other place. But we as God's people, we want to be where God is. And that localization of God in the incarnation is something that you don't hear people talk about, but there is that element of localization in the incarnation that God is present with us. Um, I, we, we've been reading Athanasius as a, as a group in the reform brotherhood telegram chat. So it's fresh on my mind, but he also talks about how the Lord, how, how the son in taking on flesh kind of meets our senses halfway in that we're now able to actually actually apprehend in some sense accommodated to our senses not just to our minds accommodated to us the king comes to us in a set in a way that we can we can appropriate that we can understand that we can experience that localization of God is something that no other religion who affirms any kind of omnipresence of God no other religion has it And it's really a special feature of the incarnation, particularly in the kingship of Christ, that our King is really truly present. Right now, we only experience him by the presence of his Holy Spirit, which is obviously significant and is amazing. But at some point in the future, we will experience the localized presence of our incarnate King in person. We will see him with our eyes and he will transform us. That's the beatific vision. So I'm glad that we had this conversation about this. I'm glad that we capped out this Christology series um, on these topics, because this is where the metaphysics of the incarnation kind of uh, meets the road, right? This is where the rubber of the metaphysics meets the road, is because of who Christ is in terms of his fundamental constitution, his being truly God and truly man, being you know one person in two distinct natures, because of who he is, these elements of his His office of prophet, priest, and king, they have such important things to say for us and to us. Um, We really you can't you can't emphasize it enough. Um, I think if you devote yourself to studying Christology, it will really transform and change your perspective on on Christianity and on your relationship with Jesus Christ.
0: And it is a reminder, in many ways, that when we have conversations about theology of all kinds, that. Mm We're not merely trying to distill down what the Bible says because it says something abstract or it's created a rule, but that everything is always in every way tied to the character of God in both the Father, the Son, right. and the Holy Spirit. So when we speak about this idea of limited atonement, which I think as now in some ways in our culture have been so overblown because it just sounds like some kind of weird esoteric summation of some strange theological concept extrapolated in a way that's based on interpretation. What instead we actually find is that because Christ is king and that he goes and saves the people that we're talking about here is volitional atonement or specific or purposeful right. atonement. That a Christ uh, a Christ yes, he is Christ. A king who in this case is the Christ goes, a king's prerogative is to serve and to save his people. And so he ought to have a people. When we think about it this way, I think what we find is that it just makes sense, right? Because the character of a king is one in which he does these volitional actions to go and seek and to save his own and to draw them as it were underneath his wings, if we're speaking about a bird or inside the confines of the wall that separates those who are outside from inside. That is the nature of all nationality. It's the nature of all kinds of you know, prerogative of leaders who represent a people that is their own. So we just find, I think, that theology is intensely rooted in purpose and in function and in identity. And so by looking at Christ as prophet, priest, and king, Hopefully, it brings us back to the idea that these aren't just abstract concepts, but that they are essentially who God is and who He's created us to be, and they're all in in every way gifts that He gives to us. So, hopefully, people have enjoyed. I think you've done a great job at expounding all of these particular things. We've gone through this mini series, and I hope people will find this to be both illustrative and refreshing, and hopefully, those two things come together in transformation. Not because we've somehow articulated in a way that's particularly profound but because this is who God is. Yeah. And I just pray that God's Holy spirit will bring these truths that you've expounded into people's lives in ways that are meaningful and transformative.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that is a good place to wrap it up. Um, we are coming back at you um, next week. We're going to be moving on in the series, but I haven't figured out what the next step is going to be yet, but it's going to be awesome. So make sure you come back and join us next week. You can always check us out on the reformbrotherhood.com website. Uh, There's places that you can uh, get involved. You can purchase some gear. You can hit us up on Patreon if you um, have fulfilled your obligations to your local church and you'd like to support us financially. Uh, Those funds really do help us um, make sure that the podcast is running well and that we have all the funds we need to do hosting fees and replace equipment and all of that fun stuff. So we won't belabor that point. We're not going to turn this into NPR pledge drive. We're not going to be giving away tote bags or anything like that. But uh, there are lots of ways to get involved. Always able to shoot us an email. You can also jump in the Telegram chat. We've got some really great brothers and sisters who are always having awesome conversations. We've been on a little bit of a theonomy kick in the chat lately, uh, so much so that I put a little bit of a moratorium on it just because everybody was sick of talking about theonomy. Uh, So if you jump in there, Uh, And that's all you see when you look back. Don't worry. We've we've talked about other things too, but you can go to t.me slash reform brotherhood and join that chat. Uh, you'll get announcements about like when new episodes come out and stuff from the society Reform podcasters and stuff too. But, uh, it's a lot of fun we really hope you join us in there.
0: Yeah. There's lots of ways to get involved and we hope that you'll do that. This is a whole big experiment, having a conversation together, doing life together, even as we are in different parts of the world. But we're doing it together as the way that God has allowed us to do in the day and age in which he's placed us to be alive. And what a time to be alive. Yeah. Well,
1: Jesse, in this time to be alive, until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood.